This is the motherfucking Blood Doctor Show. After a much-needed vacation during the week portion of the NBA calendar and a time in which I should have been gambling on the CFL, but I was instead only gambling on baseball, and I blame myself for not knowing enough about the CFL calendar to be engaged in gambling full-time, and I blame myself, and I take that responsibility And I'm sorry, CFL, but I am back, motherfuckers. And I am here after finally fixing issues with my microphone and my attitude and all sorts of good stuff. And I am ready to resume. So let's make this a more permanent thing. On a Wednesday, as it was and it always should be, and as it is such, also it is such unto you, Let's talk about some fucking sports and some fucking pop culture. But before we do that, we of course must discuss what is going on in the world. And this is a subject that I've talked about before, but it's really a subject that can't get enough cover. Um, So we'll go at it again. And that is the current rise of Nazism within the Republican Party. That is to say that essentially at this point, the Republican Party is the Nazi Party. Um, They haven't quite reached the height of World War II Nazi Party, but they're certainly the Nazi Party that was, you know, running Germany in the 30s that went out of their way to silence anyone who would dissent from their beliefs that would, you know, be uh, woke, for example, and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't murder all Jewish people, as they loved to say back then. But now, of course, it's LGBTQ people. Republicans have now targeted the LGBTQIA plus community as their number one enemy and the community that is apparently destroying the United States, despite, you know, what, what is the LGBTQIA community plus? What, what are we like? All encompassing, what are we like? Maybe 20% of the country, if even that much, if you include everyone who's, you know, bisexual and everything. Most people are not of this group and yet somehow we're the problem we're the threat to the united states it's one of the dumbest fucking things ever but of course what it really is is just they had to pick a new culture war after they overturned roe versus wade right the republicans for years have been using abortion as their main talking point their main issue on every single situation that they come up to you know, it's the first thing that comes up. Well, he doesn't believe he believes in abortion. She believes in abortion. They believe in abortion, blah, blah, blah. But now they've overturned that. So they had to choose a new primary talking point. And of course, this talking point is that LGBTQIA plus people are pedophiles and that anyone who would engage in, you know, cross-dressing or gender affirming care must be a pedophile as well. And this is obviously complete fucking horseshit, and anyone with a brain knows that. But as we know, Republicans don't target people with brains to be in their caucus. As we all know, the dumber you are, the more excited the Republicans are to have you around. Because if you're the type of person who rejects science, rejects facts, rejects numbers, in the face of, well, I just believe this, then that's the kind of person that the Republicans want on their team. And they're certainly not seeking out the best and brightest among us to vote for them. No, they're just seeking out those who will follow. I was um, 
ragging on this douchebag on Twitter, Jesse Kelly, who's one of these like, I'm such a tough conservative guy, blah, blah, blah. But he's such a pussy little bitch that like he would never actually come out from behind his phone to fight someone. But he will stick his little mob of Twitter people on you. So like I spent all morning ragging on him and making fun of him till he eventually got tired of it and had to retweet one of my things so that he could send his people after me, at which point, of course, I just muted everything because like I don't give a shit. Um, it's fun to me to make celebrities mad to the point that they feel the need to sick their little mafia on me because once you require someone else to fight your battle for you, I obviously know that I've won. So, that, you know, that was fine. Um, and then I go have lunch. <laughs> it's just, I don't give a shit. But nonetheless, these people truly believe that every one of these right-wing grifters is some sort of, you know, genius rebel who'll stand up to the wave of horrible trans people that are trying to blah, blah, etc. You know, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. You know, what these people don't understand is that gender and sexuality have nothing to do with each other. If you believe and you know in your heart that you are a woman, even if you were born presenting one way, then that has fucking nothing to do with your sexuality. And this is what conservatives choose to willfully ignore, is that gender and sexuality are literally not even close to the same thing, okay? They are different. They're not the same. And so that is... And of course, that is the obfuscation that Republicans want to make, right? They are purposefully making sure that they conflate those two things so that the dumb people will come to the school board meetings and scream insane shit about coming on the faces of liberals. Some dude at a Texas board meeting screamed in front of children about how he was going to come all over liberals and their pedophile agenda. So I'm not really sure how screaming in front of children that you're going to ejaculate everywhere is not pedophilia. But, you know, again, we don't really need logic in the Republican community. And it's honestly amazing to me, like what these grifters do, because like these right wing grifters, like your, your Jesse Kelly, your Alex Jones, they honestly have like, they've, they've actually got this thing down to a science because they literally sit there. They create this fake enemy out of a small group of people that has nothing to do with them. That does not care about them. That doesn't think about them. They paint that group of people as an enemy. And then they get all of their followers to harass those people and purchase products from them while they sit there and do nothing. These people probably don't even believe the things that they say. They just don't give a shit because it makes them money. And it's honestly impressive because the, the right-wing grifter thing is basically down to a science at this point. All you have to do is ignore anything that science people say and, you know, anything that logic says and just stamp it with the idea that I believe in God or I believe in Donald Trump. And in the eyes of a lot of those people, those are one and the same. But, you know, you just come up with that stuff, you stamp it with that, and then they'll, you know, give you millions of dollars. These people willingly go into their pockets when they have nothing to spend to give to these stupid motherfuckers who are literally grifting them. It's 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 honestly impressive. It's evil, but it's impressive. Like, you have to really have no soul, and you have to really... Like, you know, and they joke about not having empathy. And, like, we know that. Like, Jesse Kelly talks, all the, I don't have empathy. I don't care. It, like, like, he's a little pussy who's afraid of everything. But he loves to joke about, like, we should murder all these people from every country. And, he, you know, again, he has no – he, he it's not like he would fight a war. It's not like he would show up to anything. He's just a scared little bitch boy who hides behind his keyboard and tries to incite other people to do things. And it's just honestly impressive – 
how far these people have gotten because this stuff was mainstream for a while. You know, I mean, Donald Trump won the presidency. So, like, I mean, he didn't actually win, but he won enough of the Electoral College that he was placed as president. So it's it's just a very, it's an astounding situation to me. And it's obviously one that's coming to its end because the overturning of Roe versus Wade was a real eye-opening moment for a lot of Americans who recognized finally that what actually goes on on a day-to-day basis with your government matters and that all the culture war, blah, 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 bullshit, if you don't actually show up and stop these people, they will take your lives away. And all of the infighting on the Democrat, leftist, progressive, liberal side, whatever, has been a huge issue because the Democrats who are in power will spend more time making sure that they're in control of the Democratic Party than they are actually governing. And so this Roe versus Wade situation has finally woken some of them up to realize that you can't do that. You can't constantly fucking dick around. You've actually got to do things. So there's a slight glimmer of hope in this country. And despite the fact that all Republicans are Nazis, the the number of Americans who are beginning to see that Republicans are Nazis is it's larger than it's ever been. And it's changing the way that that, that everything is viewed, really. And it's important because trans rights are human rights. We need to protect cha- trans children. We need to protect all trans people. We especially need to protect trans people of color. Trans children of color, I can't think of any group that is in more trouble in this country. And we need to do everything that we can to provide them gender-affirming care and make sure that they are protected and not attacked by one of these Nazi regimes out of Florida or Texas. You know, I said this on a previous episode of this podcast that the most important thing that anyone could do in this country would be grassroots organization in Texas because flipping Texas blue would change national politics in such a way that the Republican Party would essentially be destroyed forever. And now you have these Gen Z kids like Olivia Juliana, and um, there is um, a kid who just won a a primary in, in Florida as well. Forgive me, his name is escaping me. The point is, Things are now beginning to shift a little bit. We could potentially actually be seeing something great for America because what independent voters have realized is that Republicans are full of shit. And Republicans continue to nominate Trump people. Blake Masters, Carrie Lake here in Arizona, they, you know, they only talk to their 30%. And that's fantastic. You'll win all your primaries that way. And you'll win none of the general elections that way. And Republicans have decided that they are the cult of Trump and they will do anything that Trump says or wants. Fucking let them do it. Let that party rot and burn in hell because we don't fucking need them. We don't need their hatred. We don't need anything that those people think. Trans rights are human rights. Gay rights are human rights. Lesbian rights are human rights. Okay? All of these things are incredibly fucking crucial. And they are something that I will, it is a hill that I will die on. We must stop this Nazi invasion in our country. And it starts with, as much as I hate to sound like a Democrat right now, as much as I am a leftist to my core, it starts with voting out every single red person that you can find. If they're in an office and they're a Republican, fucking vote them out. And we're going to start this fall. Let's put these Nazis in the past. Let's put them behind us. Let's send a clear message that America is not a country for hatred. Let's send that message for the first fucking time in our history. I'm going to keep it more season one old school style this week. 
because I fucking can. And I just want to dive right into a few sports topics that I have been, you know, things have been on my mind lately. Because, I mean, it's been pretty dead in the world of sports lately. I mean, I think we know that. I mean, there's, you know, in baseball, Fernando Tatis going down for uh, suspension for PD use. Um, you know, there's, you know, Jeff Gordon was just announced that he's going to come out of retirement for one race today. Like, there are things happening, but summer is generally a pretty dead time in the North American sports calendar, aside from just daily baseball games. And so there just hasn't been a ton of things I wanted to talk about. And, you know, there's obviously the one thing that has now been resolved, which is the big deal, which is Kevin Durant. And I didn't really want to sit here and talk about Kevin Durant a hundred fucking times because there's no point of sitting here theoretically going over this situation over and over and over because what is going to be is what is going to be. Like I said on this show and many other shows that I was sure that DeAndre Ayton was going to be somewhere else. And I was resigned to that. And I had accepted that despite the fact that it's not what I wanted. Well, lo and behold, he's back for a four-year deal. And fences seem to have been mended a little bit. The Suns seem to have been out on Kevin Durant for a while. Um, you know, the Rudy Gobert trade basically took the price into the stratosphere, and it seems like the Suns were never going to go to the places that the Nets wanted them to go, and that's good, you know, because I always wanted the Suns to run it back with this team. You know, I think that they're on a similar path to Milwaukee. I think that there's still an opportunity to win a championship this year, uh, especially with Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre Ayton taking another step forward. Um, I know that, you know, Paul is older. I understand all of those things, but um, I wanted to run it back with this team. And I, I'm glad that the Suns did that. I understand what adding Kevin Durant does, but I also understand what gutting your team for a 34-year-old who's played 90 games of regular season basketball over the past three years means. And, you know, we can sit here and go back and forth on it. My initial stance was I didn't want to trade Mikhail Bridges at all. Well, we didn't. And, you know, the Suns lost depth. Losing JaVale McGee hurts, but I don't think you ever were going to pay him $7 million a year to come off the bench anyway. Um, bringing back Biombo is helpful. But the Suns are just going to have to be patient, and they're probably going to need to find a way to poach one or two role players this season. You know, they're going to need to find a way to add some depth to this team because they basically went all in on Kevin Durant once they, um, you know, once they knew they were in those sweepstakes. That's kind of what their offseason was. Of course, they brought back DA, but, you know, they put everything else in a holding pattern. And again, rightfully so, it's Kevin Durant. If you can add him to your team at a price that makes sense without completely gutting your team, you do that. But the Suns weren't able and, you know, they lost a couple of, you know, pieces here and there. Now you got to figure out how to retool. Dario Sharge comes back. Maybe that helps. You know, there's a lot of pieces. There's a lot of steps. There's a lot of things that the Suns can do. But, you know, this is why I didn't want to sit here and talk about this. Because if we spent a month every day analyzing what Kevin Durant could mean to the Suns and now he's just not here, what would have been the point of that? And I do think at a certain point we go so far with the speculation and the trade talk that, you know, we're not even talking basketball anymore. We only care about trades. We're only in 2K offseason mode where I'm trying to build my new big three or big four or whatever the fuck you do. So for me, I'm happy that the Suns ran it back. I still believe this is a championship team. I believe that this team has long-term championship potential because I'm a big believer in Cam Johnson and Mikhail Bridges. So... I'm not upset about what the Suns did. I'm fine with it. I love this team. I know last year ended in a really disappointed way, and even I came on here and took them to task, but I love this team, and I didn't want to see them get torn apart 
as an overreaction to one horrible situation. You don't destroy everything you have because one season ended in a horrendous way. I mean, tear yourself up for blowing a 2-0 finals lead before you tear yourself up for Game 7 against the Mavs. I mean, that game was horrible. Yes, everything was terrible. But you blew a 2-0 finals lead the year before. That was worse. So... As much as everything sucked, I'm I'm hurt way more by the the final situation than anything else. And I think the Suns, I think not get paying everything for Kevin Durant was the right move. And again, if Rudy Gobert didn't get so much, maybe it's possible that the Suns could have gotten Kevin Durant for a more reasonable price. I don't know. Who knows how it all went down? It doesn't matter. The simple fact of the matter is that at least for now, Kevin Durant is not coming to Phoenix. And I think truthfully. In a world where that situation blows up still and a trade you know, situation comes up again and the, the evaluation of a trade comes up again, I doubt Phoenix is at the top of the list because the Nets just never had any interest in DeAndre Ayton and it's really tough to create a package without Ayton when you don't want to give up on Mikhail Bridges. So it's just, you know, I I just don't see it happening. And I hope the Suns just go out and win the title on their own. We don't need Kevin Durant. We can do it without him. And, you know, on the Kevin Durant side of things, Everyone wants to talk about his legacy and everyone wants to talk about he's changing teams and is he difficult to play with? You know, is he a leader? Is he a good locker room presence? Blah, blah, blah. All these things. I just don't think that people are going to care about this stuff as much as they say they are. Like, you care about it now. You care about it in the moment. I believe that. I understand that there are things that KD does that make people like dislike him or call him a front runner or whatever. But, like, you know, everyone's also interacting on him with Twitter constantly. You know, everyone's wanting to talk to him all the time. We all want to interview him. And everyone wants to watch when he plays. Like, KD is a star. And the simple fact of the matter is is that we dissect on a micro level every single thing that Kevin Durant does and says. Every single tweet that he sends, every single shot that he takes, every practice he shows up to, every charity event he shows up to. You know, every single thing that Kevin Durant does is under the microscope. Now, is that true for all superstars, celebrities, and athletes? Absolutely. I'm not trying to say that he's, you know, facing an increased level of scrutiny that other people aren't. I'm just saying that, you know, people sit here and talk about Katie's legacy, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Kobe, Kobe demanded a trade at one point. You know, that's what Ramona Shelburne said. She said, I remember when Kobe went on LA radio and said he'd never play for the Lakers again. And sure, that wasn't in the age of social media. But you simply forget things over time or you look at them in a different way. You know, when you have the benefit of hindsight, I think KD's career in a lot of ways will be looked at as funny, you know, like kind of just like an interesting thrill ride of a dude who didn't really give a fuck and just kind of did what he wanted. I think that people will regret that they didn't give KD more respect for what a good player he is because the discussion around Kevin Durant is never about how he's like a top two player in the league. It's always about, you know, what his next team is going to be or when he left for Golden State, blah, 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 you know. Um, And so I I think that he's just going to be looked at as a top 10 player all time. And I don't think that anyone's really going to like look back at this and knock him for these things. I don't think it matters. I do think that had Kevin Durant come to Phoenix and been – you know, the primary piece, you know, I I think he would have still had to been the second option to Booker. I know he's Kevin Durant, but it's still Devin Booker's team. Um, Okay. Let's say he was the primary option, whatever. He comes to Phoenix and delivers a championship. 
to a team that had never had one after Charles Barkley's talking all this shit, blah, blah, blah. That would have been something that maybe could have taken his legacy to a new level in terms of the mind of haters, just because Phoenix has never won a title. And, you know, KD went to Golden State and won a title with Steph's team in their mind. You know, maybe coming here and winning one with Booker's team, you know, but making it his team for a season or whatever. Maybe that would have done something for his legacy. And that was something that I thought about. But I think that, regardless people are just going to look back at Kevin Durant as a great player and if the only titles that he has are the Golden State titles you know maybe people will downgrade him in terms of you know he was never you know it was never his team or whatever but you know he won the finals MVP so you know I mean regardless of whether or not it was his team he was the best player on that team um I mean, it's Kevin Durant is an interesting guy, and his career will always be looked at in an interesting way. But I think that people are far too – you're not going to look at everything in this granular way forever. You're not going to look at you know, his most recent free agency move as the most recent thing you're thinking about forever because eventually there's going to be new guys in the league. And, you know, someone's going to move and you're going to be like, oh, man, remember when Kevin Durant demanded that trade, blah, blah, blah. And I just think that with the benefit of hindsight, KD's legacy is basically going to be fine. He's one of the best guys to ever step on a basketball court. Whether or not he chose the greatest situations, whether or not he made all the best decisions in the eyes of the public, you know, these things, you know, we can debate that till the cows come home. Fine. But was Kevin Durant one of the 10 best players to ever play basketball? I think when it's all said and done, the answer to that is going to be yes. And it won't really matter what he does from here on out. As long as he's Kevin Durant for one or two more seasons, um, I I think he's pretty much there. I mean, you could argue that with some of the injury stuff, he's maybe a little bit outside of that. And again, with, you know, he doesn't have a signature championship season or whatever. Maybe there's a couple guys you would put ahead of him that maybe didn't quite have his talent, but had more accolades. And I'm willing to listen to that. When you get to the level of debating top fives, top tens, whatever, you know, a lot of it is your opinion anyway. So, you know, you can make those points. That's fine. I'm not going to sit here and argue with it. But I do think that everything that Kevin Durant does is torn apart so much so that when it's finally not that way anymore, when he's just a businessman and a guy who plays basketball for fun and a coach or a GM or whatever the fuck he does when he retires, I think that the the benefit of hindsight will show people we had one of the great players of all time and it was a pleasure to watch him play. And, you know, I hope that he doesn't end soon. I hope that KD keeps playing for years. He's a phenomenal player. He's one of my favorite dudes to watch. I think he's one of all of our favorite dudes to watch. So I hope that the Nets thing works out for him. I hope that they lose to the Suns in the finals. But, you know, I, I don't think that he's going to have this, like, black mark on his career because he left Golden State. You just don't care about those things over time. It's whatever. You know, you just forget them. And I mean, you know, I don't know that anyone will ever say that KD was the bravest guy in history, you know, who took on the most challenges, but I don't I don't think that's what he's trying to be. And I don't think that's his brand. I think he's just Kevin Durant. And I'm fine with that. And this discussion actually lends itself to something I wanted to talk about in football, which is the Roquan Smith contract situation with the Bears. And essentially, Roquan Smith um, wanted, you know, a massive contract. We can argue about the relative worth of giving massive contracts to linebackers and safeties. 
the Bears, you know, countered with a lower number and, you know, he didn't accept it. And essentially now he's going into the final year of his rookie deal with the understanding that, you know, he's likely to be franchise tagged in the, you know, upcoming offseason if they can't come to an extension then, which seems based on the discussions that they just had, you know, unlikely. Um, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is, again, you know, debate the relative merits of whether or not you want to give a linebacker a major contract at a separate time. But what I find interesting is the way that Bears fans are framing this as a win for their new GM. And essentially that, you know, their new GM prevented the player from, you know, forcing a trade or from not showing up or from, you know, convincing them to sign a massive deal. And, you know, they got him to just show up to play out the last year of his rookie deal. I don't really understand how that's a win for the Bears. I mean, you have the player under contract for one more year, but that was always the case. You didn't, like, acquire additional assets. And now, if you franchise tag him, you are potentially looking at paying a very similar number to what you didn't want to pay him next year. Now, maybe it's a little bit lower still, but in the following year, the way the franchise tag works with the increases each year, you would be paying him like way more than you want to pay him. So I don't really see how this is a win for the bears. I mean, the fact that he's showing up, I suppose is a win, but you've also just pissed off what is arguably your best player and made it so that a 26-year-old heading into his prime is not going to be interested in anchoring your defense. That doesn't really seem like a win to me. And I find it bizarre that fans are sort of obsessed with framing everything that goes on in contract negotiations as their team versus the player. Right? My team won this negotiation against our player. Like, what are you talking about? Like, This is the thing with the whole DeAndre Ayton situation. Like, technically, the Suns won in that DeAndre Ayton signed a four-year max with another team instead of a five-year max with the Suns. And the raises that he gets in the free agency contract are cheaper than the one he would have gotten if the Suns had signed him. So the Suns saved a bunch of money over the contract while keeping the player. So technically, they won, but they also pissed off the player. And they've also created a tense situation. And they've also let the rest of the league know that they may not potentially be interested in this player, which theoretically hurts his trade value. So, like, the Suns bungled that situation. Even if they came out with a win financially, it's hard to argue that the Suns right now are in a better situation than they were a year ago. If they would have just extended DA then, things would have been really different with the tone, the vibe. Who knows how things would have gone in the playoffs? I don't know. But... The simple fact of the matter is they didn't like handle that situation well. They blew it a little bit and they pissed off one of their core players. And now they've got to rebuild everything. Now, Mikhail Bridges and DeAndre and their best friends. Things are probably going to be fine since they're both coming back. I think things will work out. But you do, you do have to sit there and look at this situation and say, this is a little awkward right now. The Phoenix Suns radio all summer was like, DeAndre Ayton can't come back to that locker room. It's going to be weird. How can they do that? Blah, blah, blah. These guys were convinced there was no way that DeAndre Ayton could be on the team next year because it was going to be too awkward. 
or that if he was on this team, that it would just be a short-term situation until the, you know, a trade could be figured out after, you know, January 15th or whatever it is. But like now it just seems like the Suns are going to roll with it. And it's an awkward situation from ownership on down without us even discussing what's going on with how fucking terrible the ownership situation is. So I don't understand how the Roquan Smith situation is a win for the Bears, and I don't understand why fans don't understand that you want to be in partnership with your players. You don't want to win against them. You're not trying to defeat them. You're trying to work with them. This should be a cooperative thing. And I understand that, oh, it's a business, it's a negotiation, but it seems to always be a business when teams are devaluing players. It's always a business at that point when teams don't want to, you know, pay a player who's broken their back for them. That's when it's a business, you know, that's when it's always a business at that point. And I just think that the smarter thing to do is to work in cooperation with players. Like I look at what the Atlanta Braves have done. The Atlanta Braves have extended a boatload of young players on fairly lucrative contracts. Some dudes who may never quite pop. They may never quite. Now, a couple of those contracts have turned out to be super bargains and they did an incredible job. But some of those dudes like, you know, they they're getting millions of dollars in years where they would have been getting like half a million in pre-arb. So now maybe they lose the potential for a couple of free agency years, but if you invest your money wisely up front, you can do a lot with 10 million when you would have been making 500,000. Like the Braves are since the Braves are buying out free agency years from players by paying them more up front and they're saying, "Look, we'll pay you right now. Yes, you lose some potential lucrative money on the back end, but you only lose that money if you play everything perfectly to free agency and you're one of the like, you know, 10 best players in the league or something. If you just end up being a dude, these contracts end up being really good for you because you still get $100 million guaranteed. So, like, I just think that sometimes you need to look to be a partner with your players and try to find ways to, you know, every, every negotiation is like, well, we're trying to find something that works for both sides. That's actually what you should be doing. But I don't think that anyone negotiates that way because everything is done from the perspective of, again, we need to win this relationship. You need, you, you need only look at the Kyler Murray situation and how contentious that got this year. And, you know, you can say, well, it got resolved. Kyler got his extension, blah, blah, blah. But the minute that he starts playing poorly, every single thing about that contract negotiation is going to be brought up again. And it's just going to become a situation where people are going to be like, well, do the Cardinals even trust him? Should they... You know, when is the first year they can get out from under that contract, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's always the case that players are assets until they sign the big extension. And then all of a sudden, they should never have been paid that much money. And how quickly can they get out from underneath that contract, blah, blah, blah. And that's always the discussion. And I just think it's weird how fans have such a negative view of players getting paid. They don't want their best players to be paid. I don't get that. I want dudes to get money. I want dudes to get their paper. They work hard. They work hard for us. They sacrifice their bodies. They do everything for us, the fans. That's for us. Why would we not want them to get paid? Why do you not want your favorite players to get every dime that they can get? You should. You should want your favorite players to get every single dime that they can get. And, you know, who cares about the owners? These guys are billionaires. Who cares about them? Fuck them. We want them to pay. We want them to pay luxury tax. We want them to pay everything. I want them to go broke paying the players who actually make the goddamn money for them. Okay? 
I don't understand the attitude that, I mean, yeah, okay, in terms of luxury tax and salary cap, it's great when you're able to add an additional player because the team made a shrewd move signing a player and giving him an an under-market extension. I understand all of those things. I understand Steph Curry's, you know, under-market extension being one of the things that allowed the Warriors to do all the things they did, blah, blah, blah. I get all of that stuff. And I'm not saying that teams shouldn't take advantage of situations when they can. The Braves are also lowering their potential long-term payroll when they hand out those contracts. It's good for both of you. And I just think it's interesting when teams work so hard against their players and create tension because they don't want to pay a couple million extra dollars. You would probably do so much better to just pay the extra money and have the goodwill. And I'm not saying that you should be Daniel Snyder handing out big money contracts to every single guy who walks into your office that with a name that you recognize. But I'm just saying, like, you're going to really tell me that you don't want young players on the Chicago... Like, okay, again, okay. I don't think that linebackers and safeties deserve big money. I understand that. I get that. But who are you going to pay on the Bears? You got to pay someone. Somebody's got to play. That team sucks. And I understand that they don't have a ton of money to spend, but you still got to spend money going forward. And, like, what are you doing? I don't care if linebacker isn't necessarily a premium position. When you have an elite player, they can make a huge difference. And you need to keep that guy around. Find a creative way to structure it so that you pay him more up front so that the long-term effects don't hurt you as bad. There are, again, work with the player. I just think that this is a bad look for the Bears. I don't think that this is a contract win. I think that when you tell players publicly that you're not going to pay top dollar and that's not what you do and that you're not going to value players and you're always going to be about the bargain. I think that you create negative perception about your franchise. And when you're Bill Belichick and you're constantly winning Super Bowls and getting guys paid elsewhere by other teams, that's fine. Okay? You don't need to pay top dollar if you're always winning. But when Tom Brady exits stage right, and suddenly now you're an 8-9 win team scraping to get by, suddenly dudes aren't just willing to show up and sign up for the pay cut anymore because there's no guaranteed rings with that. And I think the Bears, you're taking a big risk because, you know, your fans don't exactly have the greatest opinion of you at this point. So if you are struggling to get free agents going forward because the perception of the team is that they are cheap, and a losing franchise, well, again, I mean, good luck. I just don't understand why fans aren't more encouraging of their team to spend. And I think that, you know, you see fans of teams like the Yankees or the Rams or whatever that go for it. Those fans do love that stuff because they've understood and seen, you know, championships, not recently for the Yankees anyway, and they really don't spend like they used to. But historically, you understand what I'm saying. And I just think it's an interesting situation that the Bears find themselves in. We'll see where it goes. And now, before we bail, I want to talk about four different media properties that I have been, you know, heavily involved with recently, one way or another, watching them and thinking about them. And I have a lot to say about all of them. So I'm just going to dive in and go one at a time. And got two movies and two TV shows I want to talk about. Let's just start with Nope. Nope is how I feel when people ask me if this movie was good. Now, of course, 
The acting is all spectacular. You know, everyone involved in the movie did a fantastic job executing what they were asked to do. But I just think that this is the movie, this movie is the result of no one being willing to tell Jordan Peele that anything he is doing doesn't make sense or is subpar. Because so much of this movie just doesn't make sense. And so many of the links that are created are so weak and just they're facile and I just think that especially when comparing this film to Get Out and Us you know this film comes up short it's not of the same quality now is it fair to expect that every single movie that Jordan Peele makes be a cinematic masterpiece no and in some ways I will take my dislike of this movie I had such high expectations for it. I really thought it was going to be great. And so I was just, I just wasn't, I wasn't that entertained. I was bored. I wasn't blown away by it. Um, And I just, it wasn't for me. And, you know, other people may like it. That's fine. We all have our own opinions when it comes to film. But, you know, a lot of people acted like this was just another fantastic film and so crazy. And there was so much to it. And it just... This movie just felt to me like it had no soul. Like the procedure was there, the plot points were there, the connections were there, but this movie just felt like it had no soul to me. Like the character motivations were you know, kind of they were barely understandable and you know, the the cameraman commits suicide randomly. Sorry spoilers. Um you know me. If you know I'm talking about movies and stuff, I talk spoilers. Sorry if I spoiled something for you. But the point is, there will be spoilers throughout the rest of this. I just... I don't understand... This movie just wasn't for me. And I just think it was kind of boring. I think the connections were kind of weak. I think the deaths were really abrupt. And I, I just... I this was a much weaker effort for me than what Jordan Peele has done before. And so again, you know, that's a function of expectations in some ways. And so that's on me. Like if I'm expecting something to be perfect and it has flaws, then, you know, that's on me in some ways. But like, for example, the connection of the chimpanzee murdering people on set as, you know, sort of an animal mistreatment to the way that the horses are treated and and black owned businesses are treated and things like that. Like I understand a lot of the connections and I understand what was being said in a lot of ways. And it's not that the messages that Jordan Peele has aren't important. It's just that this movie was just bizarre. It's, and the thing is, it's not like he hasn't had success making bizarre films. Us was very strange. You know, there's so much about that movie that was, out there and crazy, but it worked. And I think this movie did a good job with the actors of getting their point across and getting the message across, but it just failed to sort of connect to the rest of the movie for me. And it just, again, it just felt like all the points were there. Just, I felt nothing behind it. I I, I don't, I don't know. It just, it didn't connect with me. And, you know, I, Again, this is a matter of preference. Like, I understand that some people will connect very strongly with other elements that make the movie, you know, so much more for them. And I think that that's one thing about film that 
you know, we all have to acknowledge is that, you know, if a film is made with a specific purpose or with a specific, you know, message in mind, and that message connects stronger with you for whatever reason, then, you know, you may enjoy more of that movie, even if certain parts of it are flawed. I just, you think of, like, you think of Get Out, and you think of, like, the scene with Catherine Keener, you know, circling the spoon and, and you know, getting um, Daniel Kaluuya into the, the, the sunken place and... And, you know, the images of the sunken place and how, you know, he came to the next day and he's not sure was that real. And, you know, there's so much about that that it's like it's it's it was like incredibly innovative and new. And this just felt like a monster movie where they're trying to take a picture of a monster. And the connections that they made were they were important messages, but it didn't they didn't use them in a way that like made for a very interesting film. I, you know, and again, if if the point is just to get a message across, then I understand that. I just think that in Us and Get Out, Jordan Peele found a way to tell an incredibly entertaining story while also delivering a great message. And this time, he delivered the message. The film itself fell short. I just, I felt a lot like Cloverfield, like just, I'm chasing a monster, I'm bored. And then it just kind of ended. Just... I don't think this movie was nearly as good as his other work. I look forward to seeing his next film to see how he bounces back. A movie that I fucking loved, on the other hand, was Bullet Train, which is Brad Pitt and a whole host of others on a train, quite literally. And it's guns, knives, poisons, all kinds of fun shit. And, you know, it's basically a group of hitmen on a train who have been placed there and who knows what happens from there. I won't spoil every single part of it, but I fucking love this movie for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was fast paced. Um, I enjoy things that kind of just get started. Uh, and this movie basically kicked off immediately, got right into the story. Didn't spend a lot of time dicking around. And obviously from an action movie, that's what you want. This was from the movie, the director of nobody, uh, nobody is a movie I fucking love, so doesn't uh, not surprising that I love this movie. But it kind of had the the aesthetic of of a movie like a Guy Ritchie film, like The Gentleman, um, kind of thing. Um, with uh, with the mix of you know maybe uh, I don't know Coen Brothers dark you know edge whatever. But it just it's a really good film. Brad Pitt as usual is awesome. Um, Brian Tyree Henry really did a good job too. And one thing about his character in this film is that he uses Thomas the Tank Engine to relate to other characters in the film. He's literally talking about characters being a Diesel or a Percy or whatever. And he he, he uses that to describe different characters, who's a bad guy, who's a good guy. And obviously it's funny seeing a hitman using Thomas the Tank Engine, this children's show, to speak to people he may theoretically kill or whatever. But... My nephew saw the movie with me and he is autistic and he told me that he struggles so much to understand people and to connect with people that he has to use metaphors to talk with them and connect with them. And so when he saw this character, the character of Lemon in the movie, when he saw Lemon using Thomas the Tank Engine, which is something that he also loved as a child, when he used that to connect with other people, not only was it really funny for him, but it was just like... 
it was a really understandable way for him to connect to that character. And it almost made me wonder if the character was meant to be like, you know, autistic or on the spectrum or whatever the case may be. But um, I love things like that when an actor does, whether or not it's something that comes from, you know, the screenplay or the actor itself, when they take something like that so seriously and build a whole world into this character of how they approach life, how they view everything, as if they've been this character their whole life. Um, It's thoroughly enjoyable, and it makes this movie even better because it's so, you know, relatable for everyone. Again, even my nephew who struggles to relate to people really related to this character. This movie has a little something for literally everybody. I won't spoil the ending or anything. Honestly, the second trailer gave away a little too much anyway, but it's just a good movie. It's funny. There's a lot of absurdist humor that, you know, in that we get in dark comedies. And it's just the kind of thing that I recommend. I've already seen it twice and I would go again, I'll be honest with you. Like, I enjoyed it that much. And I hope that it ends up being something that they expand the universe and make another one. I'm not sure because it didn't, it hasn't really made a ton of money. So it doesn't seem necessarily like that would happen. Um, we know how it is in Hollywood these days. If the movie doesn't make, you know, $300, $400 million in the box office, it doesn't get a sequel. Um, but, you know, still, again, super enjoyable film. Something that I would, you know, highly recommend that anybody check out. It is, it's pretty violent. I mean, it is, you know, there's some fairly graphic violence in it. But honestly, it's not worse than, you know, about half the damn shows that are on television right now. So, this is one I'm just, I don't want to give away too much. I know I'm always the one who's on here spoiling things, despite going on Twitter, ranting at people who spoil things. But this one, I don't want to give away too much because I want people to see it. It's probably going to be out of theater soon, so stream it. Maybe if they get a ton of streaming views or something, they'll make a sequel. I don't know. Um, but again, highly recommended. Like, I would give Bullet Train like a 9 out of 10. Like, I fucking love that movie. It's already one of my favorites, and it will be for a long time. Now I want to talk about two television shows, one that just ended, one that may have ended. Um, We'll start with Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul is a frustrating show for me because there's so many parts of it I love, but there's so many parts of it that are difficult. And I think you have to give the nod to Vince Gilligan in that, you know, he doesn't create a fake world, a Disney world. He does create a real world and things are a little bit more complicated than they need to be, but spoilers upcoming. The end of Better Call Saul just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like Saul, essentially, if you watched it, you know, Saul was about to go to jail. And as you know, if you didn't watch it, I guess he had prosecutors down to seven years. They had caught him, but his successful, you know, way he was going to frame the story and everything. He had prosecutors down to seven years. He was going to serve it in, you know, a place he wanted to be. And then he was going to be out and free and in the clear. Um, But then essentially to make himself look good in front of Kim, who is now his ex-wife and left him years ago and doesn't like want to be with him anymore. He tells the truth about what happens and talks himself into an 86 year sentence. And that's the end of it in jail. Now, If I thought that there was a future where Jesse's going to come from Canada and break Saul out of prison in some sort of sequel to El Camino that also serves as 
the end of Better Call Saul breaking him out of jail, I would be completely fucking fine with what happened. That would be awesome. But I think we know that's not happening. I mean, Vince Gilligan has said that he would theoretically consider coming one day to the Better Call Saul universe, coming back to it, the Breaking Bad universe, as it were. I think it's the Better Call Saul universe at this point. Uh, I mean, Saul is more of a character across, you know, the entire universe than either of the characters for Breaking Bad were, really. Um, just he was a huge part of Breaking Bad and they were not part of Better Call Saul really at all. So um, regardless, I don't think that there's any situation where they're going to come back to this universe and I don't think they're going to do something where they break Saul out of jail. And so I just think it's stupid that, you know, the whole show was about how he never had a conscience and, you know, he and Kim were bad for each other and, I know he wanted to show her he changed or something, but it just, after he shows her that he changed, she shows up at the prison that he's at and she uses her expired bar card to fake her way into being a lawyer to come see him. Like, you're not supposed to do that shit either. Like, and, and, and Kim is just as culpable for everything that happened. Not, not with Walter White, obviously, but with, you know, Lalo Salamanca and, and Howard Hamlin being killed. And now that's not why Jimmy's going to jail. Jimmy's going to jail for, or Saul's going to jail for what happened with Walter, but blah, blah, etc. I just, the whole point of the show is that he always got himself out of trouble. He always came out on top. He always wins, which is what he says. They asked him, where do you see this? He says, I see myself coming out on top like always. And then in the last minute, he just throws his entire life away just to make himself look good. It just doesn't jive with the character. And I understand with this idea that like, well, he changed. He changed from seven years to 86 in prison. Really? Like he was still, re the character is still like in his 50s. He could have gotten out and had another 20 years of life. Who would willingly walk themselves into an extra 79 years of prison when you're only facing seven? Just to make your ex-wife like you a little more when she doesn't love you, though. Just to prove to her that something. What the fuck is that? Like, what is that? Nobody, He. they haven't talked in years. He called her basically tried to talk to her and she, you know, hung up on him or whatever. I understand he's still pining for her or something, but so years after your wife leaves you and you've banged hundreds of whores or whatever, and you've done all these other things, you're still pining for her so much that you would go to jail for an extra 79 years just so that she would come smoke a cigarette with you one time and be like, you had him. It's just stupid. It's it's not what Saul would do. It's not what Jimmy would do. And I understand that what he was going to do was a scumbag thing to Hank's wife, blah, blah, blah. That's who Jimmy is. That's who that character is. And I just don't understand Vince McGill's thing about building these universes around these characters and then being like, no, they're bad guys. You're supposed to hate them, despite the fact that they're the central character. Like, what are you doing? You're, you're building universes around these characters. You're making me love them through their actions. And then you're expecting me to just hate them because you're like, no, it's there. You shouldn't <laughs> like, what do you, I don't understand the thought process that goes into these things. And I, 
I readied myself for the idea that I was going to hate the ending, and I hated the ending. I liked the episode up until the end. But, you know, and I understand the, the thought process, like, you know, he starts the season, we started the season, and he was like, or you started the show, and, you know, he's like baking at Cinnabon, and now he's baking in prison, like, it's not even different. He, had, he has respect of all the dudes in jail, like, it seems like everyone respects him, they know who he is. So he's like fine with that. But I just don't, I don't buy that shit. I just really don't buy it. And I just felt like it was a bullshit cop-out ending and I thought it was lame. And that's that's how I felt about that. I didn't like it. And I felt like they wrecked the show. And again, if they come back to this universe and there is some scenario in which they break Saul out of prison, then I'm, I'm, I'm with it. But they've basically said they're not going to do that. And so I'm just not that interested. I, I'm just not, you know, I don't I don't like it. So, you know, we'll see what the future holds, if it holds anything for this franchise. But this one was disappointing. And as, as good as this show was, it was a really good show for a lot of reasons. There are a lot of great moments in Better Call Saul. This, this final season, the way they structured it and everything, it kind of felt flat to me that... The, you know, there were a couple of episodes in the last four that just really didn't, they were so much set up for just such a minor thing. And I just, I didn't, I wasn't digging it. And it's just, you know, it's fine. Vince Gilligan, it's his show. He can run things how he wants. But they, these shows will miss the mark on being like my favorite shows of all time or the best shows of all time because they just strive too hard to try to punish you for liking the characters that they revolve around. Like they want you to be punished for rooting for Walter. They want you to be punished for rooting for Saul. And it's like, well, you were supposed to be rooting for Skylar. You were supposed to be rooting for Howard Hamlin or whatever. Like, I don't understand what the thought process is. And I feel punished as a viewer. And I don't like that thought process. Let me enjoy an ending. It doesn't always have to be the most miserable of miserable. And I understand you know, if you want to look at this universe and say, Jesse had the good ending, El Camino, he gets to go to a new place and live a brand new life. You know, I understand that thought process from some perspective, but like to me, Jesse left Brock alone and the person, the two women that he ever cared about were both fucking murdered, like, and he had to watch them both be dead, like, Life has no value to Jesse ever again. Like, I don't ever think he'll fucking recover from these things. So how is that the happy ending? Like, and again, I understand that it's not Vince Gilligan's job to, like, necessarily just give us a happy ending. But, like, give me one of your characters making it to a situation that feels good. And, I mean, Jesse being alone in the Alaskan wilderness or whatever it is. I mean, okay, I guess that's good. But, yeah. I don't know. I was disappointed. And speaking of disappointing things featuring Aaron Paul, how about season four of Westworld? I don't know if that was supposed to be the season finale or the series finale or whatever, but look, Westworld season one was great. Westworld season two was bad. Westworld season three I enjoyed, and then Westworld season four was fucking terrible. So, you know, they got it right on the odd numbers, I guess. So maybe they should do a fifth season. Maybe they can fix it. But like, what the fuck is this show? And I'm going to tell you right now, spoilers are coming. So if you don't want to hear those, hop off. But like, what the fuck is the point of this show? This is the plan that they sat out and mapped out in the beginning. And that plan apparently involves, for some reason, the extinction of humanity 
because of something to teach us a lesson about humans being dumb or something. I don't even know. And now, like, most of the hosts are also extinct and Dolores is the only one left. So now she's, like, creating Westworld in her mind to, like, give them a chance at fidelity. But it's like, again, that's just in your mind. So isn't it just you imagining that stuff? Like... Whatever explanations they would have for this, they've gone off the rails. Like, humans are not really that interested, probably, in watching a show about the extinction of the human race. Like, why would that be interesting to us? Especially when, like, you started this whole season with this, like, post-war, we won the war, we shut the machines down, blah, blah, blah. And then you just unceremoniously kill Caleb randomly. You randomly kill William like four different times, but only one time is he actually dead. And it's always, you know, unceremonial and just, it's just random and stupid. And you kill all the characters. Everyone's dead. Dolores is dead. Charlotte's dead. William's dead. Caleb's dead. Everyone's dead. And now there's going to be one more season with, you know, some copy of Dolores and some version of her recreating something like what like what what the fuck is the point of this show like how is this what they came up with in the beginning like i typically i applaud a show that works out their entire plot from beginning to end at at the beginning so that you don't so you know where you're going so that you don't get off course and suddenly veer somewhere entirely different and you know, so like this is what they wrote down. This is what they came up with. But like, how is the extinction of the human race like a good idea? Like, is the fifth season going to reveal that the human race is not extinct and that the outlier cities have actually rebuilt things? Or is that about like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is what is the point of any of it? Like Westworld at this point is a lot like True Detective season two and that it feels like they just set out to tell a story that doesn't matter, that everything is pointless, that who gives a shit, choices don't matter, decisions don't matter, whatever. It's all just, in the end, everyone dies. And if truly Dolores was the bad guy who uploaded a strategy to Rehoboam in season three that led to the end of humanity, then, like, why did Caleb do that? Like, Sirach wasn't dead at the end of season three. Why didn't we find out what happened to him, especially when we saw Maeve and Caleb destroy a third one of those giant brain ball things. Like there's just so much disparate random stuff that they skipped over. There's so many different pieces that they should have shown and they just unceremoniously kill all their characters so quickly, dump them all. Everyone dies. And now it's just like world's over. Everyone's dead. See you later. And it's just like, there's no redeeming this. And the show that this was in the first year, it is obviously not that. It never it never was that again. And it's it's weird to go back and watch. You know, when you go back and rewatch all four seasons of this show, you essentially feel like you're watching a different show each season. And I understand that it's a Herculean task to create this sort of universe and task yourself with, well, we're going to tell this story from beginning to end and we're only going to do it in four seasons and eight episodes a season and HBO doesn't want to give us the budget, blah, blah, blah. I get all of that. And so it's not perfect. But when, you know, you just randomly killing characters in the middle of episodes, is not, that's not a budget problem. That's a you problem. That's a writing problem. And killing every single character that we've grown to know and love so that you can so that I don't even know what you can do. I don't understand the point of any of these decisions. And 
It just again feels like it's meant to teach you a lesson about the pointlessness of life. And congratulations, I get enough of that stuff from <laughs> the reality of the world. I really don't need you to bring it up to me in a television show. So whatever, you know, it's I was disappointed. I think a lot of people are disappointed. Who knows if there will be any future? And that is the Blunt Doctor Show. I do want to say one thing. Since I've recorded last, Bill Russell has passed. And Bill Russell is an icon in the history of NBA. He is one of the few players who could play in any era and dominate in any era. He is the greatest center of all time, in my opinion. He is the greatest winner in the history of NBA. And he is also the most underrated history player in the history of the NBA. Someone that you know modern fans especially casual fans do not give enough respect to and bill russell passing away is is something that hurt me um i i loved that dude I, he was an incredible person he put up with so much horrendous racism and everything in his years in boston and he still you know loved that franchise and he still did so much for them and um you know he even though it was difficult for him to live in boston in those years he never took it out on the fans today or anything like that. He treated them with respect that maybe they didn't even deserve. Um, Bill Russell was an amazing man, an amazing human who, you know, stood up for progressive rights and what was right till the end of his life. And um, it's just, it's really sad to me. He's someone who, um, who I love truly. Those who are close to me know how much I love and respect Bill Russell. Um, and that one hurt. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I just want to shout out rest in peace to Bill Russell because, you know, that he is someone who will be missed and someone that I will still continue to champion is one of the all-time greats who needs to be respected. Um, and, um, yeah, and I, I hope that everyone who doesn't know about Bill Russell will go back and watch. Watch some highlights. Go on YouTube. Watch the man play. He was incredible. And he's the best defender of all time. And... He was someone who would be great in any era. So, that is the Blunt Doctor Show. Peace to you and yours. I think you know what I'm saying when I'm telling you that you gotta just push through it all, stick it out for the ones that you love because no matter how difficult life gets, when you break through to the other side, it's all worth it in the end. So, if you ever reach a point where you feel like giving up or quitting, don't do that. Because it's all worth it on the other side. That's the one thing I've really learned, learned in this life is it's all worth it when you get there. So if you ever feel like quitting, don't quit. Keep going. Because it's all going to be worth it in the end. And sometimes I take breaks from my podcast because I need a minute or whatever. But, you know, I'm... I'm just like everyone else. I'm going to come back. I'm going to keep firing. So don't ever give up. Don't ever quit. Don't ever think that it's not worth you giving your all. Because that's what this is all about. Everything in life is worth you giving your all. Don't quit. Don't give up. Peace to you and yours. Love those around you. Love those who are most important to you. Tell them how much you love them every day. I will fucking see you soon. B from B&T's coming back on Monday and I'm going to record another show maybe even before then because I am on fire. Let's get these seasons going, baby. I'm excited. <laughs>